Hi, and welcome back to This Week in Voice, Season 8, Episode 10. This is the originally scheduled season finale of the season. Uh, we've had a lot of great guests on the show dating back to January. Uh, we typically will run the show up uh, close to Project Voice, and uh, that's what we're doing here. Uh, next week, we'll have sort of an epi epilogue episode um, previewing the conference, but in terms of having panelists, this will be uh, the end of this season until season nine kicks off in early September. I'm Bradley Metrock. I'm CEO of Project Voice, uh, and uh, we're honored to have you join us. Got a great panel to discuss some really interesting stories. I want to get to them. Chris Pitcock, I'm going to start with you. Uh, tell us who you are uh, and tell us about Sarah Proc. Uh, hi, Bradley. Yeah, I'm uh, Chris Pitcock, and I'm CTO at uh, Sarah Proc and also one of the co-founders. Um, we are based here in Edinburgh, Scotland, um, and we are specialists in text-to-speech. That's our kind of pure, pure focus. Um, we have our own DNN-powered speech synthesis engine that we've built in-house um, over many, many years. Um, the advantages of that is we, we run on device anything from uh, mobile, mobile phones through desktop servers, cloud, we can support all these different platforms and any pretty much any type of, of customer. Um, we do a lot of voice cloning and we do a lot of custom voice creation for, for big corporates and uh, down to cloning for medical um, needs. So people with ALS or uh, having a laryngectomy, we do uh, voice cloning for them um, across 19 languages with more being, being added all the time. Um, so yeah, that's that's us. Excellent, yeah. And the work y'all did with uh, Roger Roger Ebert um, is uh, fantastic. That's uh, that's something I always think about when I think of y'all. Uh, thank you for joining us on the show. Next up, we have Jesse from Paper Cup. Jesse, say hello. Tell us who you are and and tell us about Paper Cup. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, we don't manufacture paper cups, even though every supplier out there has now reached out to us over the last few years. But uh, I'm Jesse. I'm a co-founder and the CEO of Paper Cup. And what we do is we want to make videos watchable in any language using our own in-house built translation tools, as well as our own in-house built uh, text-to-speech systems. Um, and the idea is simple. There's just a lot of video content out there that's stuck in a single language, whether it's the 250 million hours uploaded to YouTube every year. Um, and traditional dubbing struggles, I think, to accommodate for that volume of videos. And it just doesn't allow it to be incorporated for from a price or a labor standpoint. And that's what we want to solve for, basically, by using uh, AI and different translation tools that we've built. Excellent. Yeah, no, that's um, that's funny about uh, vendors contacting you uh, about actual paper cups. Um, yeah, look, you got a super interesting company. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Yeah, of course. We have two Robs on the show, so I will distinguish between them uh, by the, the initial of their last name. Rob C., tell us who you are. Tell us who you're with. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate you having me on the show. So I'm the CEO and founder of Valiant AI. So we've developed a end-to-end -end solution that we are targeting into the restaurant industry. I initially looked at probably 20 different industries where we could take open-ended conversational AI technology, picked restaurants because it's huge, over $900 billion per year in the United States and has a massive labor challenge. There's 1.8 million unfilled positions within hospitality today. 
So what we do is we automate order taking and we're starting with drive-through restaurants. So over 100,000 drive-throughs in the United States, customer pulls in, our AI greets them, carries on a conversation, answers questions, injects the order into the point of sale system and gives the price back to the customer. For a large percentage of restaurants, what we do is we automate all of the tasks associated with order taking. And for a smaller percentage of restaurants, we can automate an entire position where you used to have somebody dedicated doing order taking. Now we handle all of that for the restaurants and we're working with some of the biggest and most recognizable brands in the country to automate this order taking. It's been a it's been a normal, pretty smooth sailing last couple of years for restaurants, hasn't it? <laughs> Why would you be needed? <laughs> yeah, it's been great. They don't even need to show up or do anything. It just <laughs> runs itself. No, um, look, COVID was really hard uh, for a lot of restaurants. We kind of break it down into three segments. So you have sit-down restaurants, you have fast casual, think noodles and company and Chipotle, and then you have quick service restaurants, which we would think of as fast food. And that's going to be your Taco Bells and your McDonald's of the world. Um, Labor is a massive problem. So 33 to 50% of all restaurants are understaffed right now. On average, turnover is about 100 150% per year. So you're basically turning over your entire shift every 12 months. It's massive, massive pain point for the industry right now. So being able to have an AI that never calls out, always shows up on time, you don't have any labor discrimination suits. Uh, it's been a, It's been a huge win for a lot of our customers. Well said. Thank you for joining us on the show. Thanks again. Last but not least, Rob L. Tell us who you are. Tell us who you're with. Thanks, Brad. Um, I'm the CMO and co-founder of BotCopy. Uh, we're a SaaS, enterprise SaaS company based in Santa Monica, California. Um, the name BotCopy is a carryover from when we started out in 2015, 2016, writing uh, the dialogue for conversational interfaces. So we weren't at that time programming. Um, we kept evolving and eventually we saw an unmet need, which was to bring uh, Google Dialogflow in particular to websites. Uh, a lot of these um, frameworks were designed that, like the really top enterprise frameworks with uh, advanced NLU and intent and fulfillment functions were designed for messaging apps and telephony. Um, one of the missing pieces that maybe wasn't accounted for originally was how to get this into a rich custom web chat layer UI. Uh, our clients were saying, hey, we've got millions of people visiting our website. We want this advanced chatbot on our website, maybe also on you know Messenger or WhatsApp or telephony, but we also want it on our website. And at the time, it was difficult to create that custom solution. It was very costly and just keeping it up to date was just an endless thing. And so it was a, it was a deal breaker. So no one was doing it. So we created a lightweight SaaS, the low price point, which was ADA compliant, tons of front-end features, um, hundreds of front-end features that can kind of read the room and carry context from page to page um, and just meet all the criteria for enterprise and public sector so that when they've realized, hey, we wanna put our dialogue flow agent onto our high traffic website, we have a SaaS that's secure and powerful and can do that. And that's what we've been doing for the past three years. It just continues to grow into this massive product. It started out as kind of a lightweight product. Now it's a massive code base that does a ton of things. We have a live chat suite and we're working with state and local governments and enterprise companies around the world. Excellent. 
um, thanks to you and all four of y'all for being part of the show and four super interesting businesses. Um, appreciate you taking the time to share your experience and expertise uh, with me in the audience as well. Um, with that, let's get to the news. Story number one, this is from the BBC. ChatGPT bug leaked users' conversation histories. So this is an interesting one. There, If you look at this story and see how it's presented from a number of different sources, it varies. And uh, I didn't include a bunch of different sources. I just included this one. Um, there's some deviation on how it's reported in terms of what ChatGPT, you know, what OpenAI actually revealed. But the crux of the matter is still the same. And I'm going to go in the reverse order of the introduction. So I'll start with the two Robs and, and then uh, and then Jesse and then Chris. And then we'll, you know, rotate the order as we go through. Rob Lubo, um, I want to start with you. Uh, interesting story here. Um, you know, this is one of the few stories, and I mean few, in the hurricane of media on ChatGPT that is in any way not positive. <laughs> so uh, I want to get just uh, turn it over to you. Uh, interesting piece, uh, interesting occurrence. What do you take away from this? I mean, it's not the first time I've heard of breaches and, and you know, it's happened with some of the biggest companies around. So it's going to happen. Um, I can think of at least 10 in the past decade, you know, where, where some private data was released uh, or was made public by accident. So uh, I give them a pass on that one. I think they fixed it quickly. More important for our company and for companies who are aware of this happening, there's an easy way to protect yourself, maybe not foolproof, but just having like a protocol. So I use ChatGPT all, the, all day long and we have lots of NDAs and I'm writing you know, communicate with our vendors and with our clients, as well as marketing pieces and so forth. Um, it's not that hard to just, it seems like kind of a simple hack, but just replace the pronouns. Just don't, don't, you can, if you want the structure of your thing to make sense, you don't have to put the name of the company or your name or your city or your name of your software. You can kind of craft the original prompt. Let's say you're doing a draft and you want help with it. You can craft that in something you're a little bit more comfortable with, like Docs or Word. You can use a find and replace function, and you can just say replace the name so-and-so with a gibberish. And right away, the worst case scenario is if something leaks, at least you have that plausible deniability. Nobody can kind of fully extrapolate who you're talking about or what you're talking about. So for anyone who's worried about that kind of thing, I'm personally not. I don't think that the, the glitch was too um, scary from my standpoint, because it just showed, I think, the title of the piece and not the content of the piece. Uh, it's still a little concerning, but if, you, if you're if you super concerned about it, get rid of those proper nouns. Uh, just replace them with common nouns and just don't put any personal identifi identifiable information in your original query. Uh, and maybe craft a small uh, protocol messaging to your team saying, for any of you using OpenAI for the near future, please follow this protocol of using find and replace. And you can even use OpenAI to craft that little message to send to your team if you want. It could probably do a better job. That's interesting. So it's interesting just to, you know, uh, great, great comments. Interesting to hear, you know, the the amount that you're using it. Um, you know, I don't think that's obviously any surprise, but it's um, Rob Carpenter. What you just heard from Rob L is a... Um, um, 
a forgiving position. Um, do you agree with that? How does this piece, you know, resonate with you? What stood out to you? And then you just heard, Rob, you know, the other Rob, um, you agree with his position? You disagree? Your, your thoughts? Yeah, actually, I agree. I might even take it further and just say, yeah, this stuff happens. Like, this is the, you know, 21st century. I don't think you should ever put anything into the internet that you wouldn't want I don't know, I took an ethics class in college that it was like your mother test, you know, if your mother saw what you were typing or writing or saying to somebody, would she be proud or disappointed in you? And it's, I've always thought of that as like a super basic, basic, like ethics test, you know, if I'm ever concerned about something. Honestly, I would think about that in terms of chat GPT, just like anything else on the internet. Like I, I know we're trying to do so much around security and safety. I'm of the opinion that it's more of an illusion than anything. We have the perception of security on the internet, but it doesn't really exist. Like almost regardless of how good you are at something, somebody is better. The NSA's super secret hacking tool, which you would think would be the last thing ever to get leaked, was hacked and leaked. So if the NSA can't keep their deepest, darkest secrets safe, yeah, man, your chat GPT prompts are probably going to get leaked at some point. So be really careful about what you post in there. Um, I think trying to anonymize what you're asking for is a good idea. You could take it another step further and just say, well, don't use chat GPT. Like there's some really good open source projects that are coming out. We'll be talking about one of them in our second news story. Download your own LLM, put it in your own secure environment, and then go nuts and ask it whatever you want to ask it at that point. But if you are using software that is owned by a major corporation or a major corporation put $13 billion into it, assume they're looking at your data and using it to make it smarter. Excellent. So Jesse, we have two um, votes in from the Robs that it's all good. Um, this is gonna happen. Uh, the onus is on, on you, the user. Um, I don't necessarily disagree, but I want to get your thoughts. Uh, what stood out to you from the piece? Um, and uh, do you share the opinion of the, 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 the two previous opinions? I think unfortunate for you, Bradley, I do probably think along the same lines. I can probably play the counter argument if that's going to be exciting for people. But I, I, it's hard to find a company now that hasn't, especially the more well-established ones that are targeted by virtue of them having the user bases that they do and the level of engagement that they do that haven't seen serious hacks. I mean, PayPal last week is a, what is it? It's an $80 billion company and 35,000 users information was revealed. I just, this is just part and parcel of building products that are distributed to tens of millions of people. So I don't think it comes as a surprise. What matters more is what the reaction is and whether or not there's um, whether, whether or not they actually assign blame or if they take responsibility and, I felt like they took responsibility uh, as they should in this case. And we should expect more of this to happen, especially if they're being pressured, especially by the likes of Microsoft to release these incremental improvements over time. We should expect to see more mishaps, um, more leakages, more challenges. And that's just a function and a byproduct of building new tools. No, I, I don't necessarily disagree, and 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 I never have a problem with what the opinion of the panels the the panel is. It's uh, I I will play devil's advocate in a minute, uh, I suppose. But before well, I do that, Chris, there, there's just there is just one thing that I would add. I, I mean, sure. if, if we're getting you know the point that I pr is probably arguably more contentious about OpenAI is a 
its original founding and intentions with Elon Musk's original funding as well versus whether or not that was not not for profit, whether or not it was more altruistic versus what it's been the beast that it's now been converted into. I think that's probably more debatable. And the second component also being the data on which it's trained, right? I, I think it's 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 no secret that there are a lot of issues and lawsuits that are being filed, whether it's by Getty Images and the like with Stable Diffusion or in other components. It's it's I, I think that's a much murkier domain that is quite controversial that I don't think has the foundational answers to yet. That's a great point. Yeah. So um, clearly, you, you you know, thinking about both sides of it, and we'll we'll come back to, to some of that in just a second. Chris, I want to come to you. Um, want to get your thoughts. So you've heard the rest of the panel. Um, the, there's relative consensus there. What stood out to you from this story? Um, and do you share their opinion? Yeah, I, th I think underneath um, what what um, what I was wondering about is whether actually the, the way people interact with these um, models is actually more likely to elicit personal information and and than uh, than than a typical web search or the, the kind of data that you might see stolen in other in other exploits um, because it's kind of being your friend in some ways if you want it to be um, and so you may find that people have actually just you know put out more more data than that they would want to keep um, keep private um even though I, yeah i appreciate yeah if you're you kind of have to assume that this data could be stolen when you uh, upload it to the internet but you know we we do have to take it seriously we have to take security breaches seriously um and that that probably that as as users we 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 can't prevent it happening but you know the 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 response should be generally fines perhaps or legal you know le the, the the legal ramifications do need to ensure some level of kind of safety on the uh, uh for our for our data um but i think openai were pretty clear that they are using all of your conversations as feedback for their for their systems um internally so you have to assume they they can uh, look at all this look at all this stuff and uh, and and work work from it. No, I total agreement. So yeah, I share I share your agreement. Um, your your thought process for sure. You know, you this is a strange age, and you, you got to watch your back. You know, and and not to say OpenAI is doing anything nefarious. I don't believe that, but um, you know they're. As the article notes, in fact, let me read this. It, I think it's the very last sentence of this piece. Um, it's the last two sentences. Google and Microsoft, a major investor in OpenAI, have been jostling for control of the burgeoning market for artificial intelligence tools. But the pace of new product updates and releases has many concerned missteps like these could be harmful or have unintended consequences. In other words, you're moving so quickly that anybody, this would happen to anybody. And I think that's, you know, uh, within the arguments that y'all were making, and I, I don't necessarily disagree. So you just got to sort of be policing yourself. The point I, I, I want to play devil's advocate for a minute, and, and Jesse, your points were well taken, but I want to take it in a slightly different direction as we stay on this story for just a minute. So uh, I'm spending a lot of time these days thinking about the parallels between um, Alexa's 
rise rise and fall in terms of media coverage and being you know uh adoption um and uh, usage relative to what we're seeing with chat gpt and obviously with chat gpt we're still at that very nascent phase where you know the honeymoon phase where you can do no wrong but um i my mind goes back to alexa which had a similar period where it could do no wrong which ultimately then turned into uh okay well everyone's got this now which turned into uh i'm kind of getting sick of this now <laughs> you know we're it's a little overexposed to uh yeah we're let's focus more on privacy so you know i um i look at a story like this with chat gpt and i i almost view it as just just the very very beginnings of you know the change in the conversation I think we got many, many months to go still of honeymoon type of period where it's it's all good. But um, at some point, uh, the the privacy conversations will will surface because so much of what already is happening with ChatGPT emulates the hype cycle um, of Alexa. Um, when I when I ruminate on all that and I say all that, what is y'all's response? And anyone who wants to respond to this can. What jumps out? Do you do you agree that we'll go through a similar sort of phase where, you know, ultimately public opinion will start to turn on this and we'll reach some sort of steady state equilibrium in terms of chat GPT and LLM-based AI utility versus privacy? Or do you think that, no, not really, uh, you know, it's just going to keep going and um, it, it'll probably be different. Anybody's thoughts on that? Yeah, I can jump in. I think every, you know, new software technology industry, think Bitcoin, right? Like it's on the backside of its hype cycle right now. I think everything goes through this process at one point or another. I'm sure like a lot of the panelists have spent a lot of time just thinking about ChatGPT and LLMs and where they fit kind of in a broader economy and thinking like, well, what type of companies would be created off of this new technology? And I really think that this technology is more of like a force multiplier for existing companies, technologies. It's going to be an extremely impressive feature that will make companies more profitable, make them scale faster. So I think that there's going to be a lot of excitement. I think it will start to die down, but I don't think it's going to die down because people are going to use it less. I really think, you know, following on kind of the Microsoft analogy that this is really going to become Word or Excel for future generations where it's just going to be embedded in everything and it'll be a part of daily life and it'll be something that people use to be significantly more efficient in what they do. I think it'll calm down, but when we get to GPT 7, 8, 10, 50, you know, I would continue to expect to see new capabilities that come out of this technology over time. So when we get to GPT-8, you mean like next week? Um, <laughs> I, I also, I also think, um, I also think we need to look at the the speed of adoption as a fairly good proxy of what state it's in. Right? It took what two months for them to reach 100 million users. Um, you know, Instagram and TikTok took longer than that, and those are more socially minded applications or socially ingrained applications that. Through word of mouth just naturally and organically spread whereas open AI reached its yes there's there's obviously some network effect with having more users but you don't 
reap the same reward as you do on Facebook or these other social platforms. So the incentive to use it was literally just to get your hands on it and use it. Yet they're still seeing the, the over demand that they are today that is putting them, that's, that's putting their ability to even serve it at a high degree of availability in a difficult position. So I think we have to look at that. That, that is a, a serious adoption curve that certainly Alexa didn't match. Alexa has you probably know these numbers better than I do, probably, but it's something like what 70, 80 million devices, and that's after that's after Amazon makes a very conscious choice to often sell it as a loss leader or of some sort to offer it at heavy discounts to get into people's homes. And I'm curious what the percentage usage rate of their you know hundred thousand skills are, and what the actual usage rates look like today. As compared to a new tool like ChatGPT, I think I think it's actually a very different ballgame that we're looking at. Well, no, yeah, and you could argue this either side too, and you you know you could um, I mean Alexa, and, I don't mean to imply that Alexa and ChatGPT are um, identical in in any other way other than what I expect to see in terms of if you're graphing the media positivity or negativity of the coverage and the amplification of the cover the, the volume of the coverage. Um, over time relative to how pir- uh, privacy is discussed. You know, privacy is always discussed in terms of uh, measuring against the utility of the underlying asset, right? So at the very beginning of anything, it's new. It's like we're still measuring the utility. So it's like hard to even talk about privacy. So we don't. Then as we go, you know, get more familiar with it, okay, now we're seeing the cracks in the armor and we start to talk more about privacy. And then ultimately, like I was mentioning, you sort of reach this equilibrium. We've seen it thousands of times. Also, lest I leave out, the media loves to build things up for the sole purpose of tearing it down. And um, and so, you know, I, I would expect us to see the same sort of things going on here. But you're right, the user's a little bit different. The loss leader argument, I think, is probably similar. You know, ChatGPT, you know, OpenAI made the deal with Microsoft because they were losing, by all estimates, two to three million a day. Um, that's not sustainable. So, you know, it, we're, we're, you know, with Amazon, they're losing, you know, losing money too. So there's similarities, there's differences. It's just I'm I'm studying this and trying to make sense of it, like everybody else. It, uh, Rob, L, or Chris, any closing comments before we move on to the next story? Yeah, I did. Uh, I did ask. Um, I did ask Bard the other day whether it thought the uh, where it thought LLMs were in the uh, in the hype cycle, uh, and uh, and it said the peak. But I don't think that's necessarily true. We may we may have a bit to go. Um, I think you're you're right that uh, the the privacy becomes with kind of maturity as people get you know, get get used to the technology and. Uh, uh, but I think we we will we we have the, the the trough of disillusionment is it to to come definitely with these technologies as people realise that no 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 chat GBT can't replace all of your journalists or your entire marketing team um, you still need a a human really still needs to be there to fix all of the mistakes in chat GPT's copy which is a feature of chat GPT rather than rather than a bug um, so yeah we have we have a bit of a way to go I think. Well said. Rob Bell, any other comments before we move on? You good? Oh, you're on mute. No wonder I couldn't jump in. I was worried that Alexa was listening to my conversations in the room, whereas with ChatGPT, I'm not too concerned about privacy issues in the same way. And I'm getting a ton of more utility from ChatGPT and now Bard than I ever got from Alexa. 
it's like manifest right away. I can see the value it's creating. Um, and so even if I do have privacy issues, it's like doesn't compete with that, that jolt of um, endorphins I'm getting using these, these products. Um, not all LLMs are the same. So the way they're curated and the, as a foundational LLM, LLM, the way it's trained and curated is going to create different, it's not going to be like ubiquitous one LLM. Um, and I think in terms of privacy, you know, looking at like a Google, for instance, I have a little more trust in that, that company. It's older. They have a little bit more experience with security. I kind of think of it like Bitcoin and then Ethereum, you know, OpenAI uh, came out with ChatGPT. Now Google's, you know, whatever Lambda model is going to present BARD, which might be a little bit more secure, a little bit more uh, user-friendly, um, ready for prime time, so to speak. That's my take on it. And then I just wanted to circle back and say, in terms of the security breach, I don't want to come off. I think I speak for all of us. We, none of us want to come off aloof about it or like too cavalier. It's a big deal. I'm sure that they had a, a sleepless night. I'm sure Sam Altman wasn't too pleased. Um, we all freak out when this stuff happens at our own companies. It's a huge concern. But looking at the, the grand view of it, we're trying to be professional and say, well, the big picture you know, let's put it behind us and, and be mature about it. But yeah, scary moment for them, I'm sure. Well said. That's a perfect place to to, to leave that. Uh, great comments all the way around. Um, story number two from New Atlas, new publication. This is we've never had a story uh, in eight seasons from uh, this group of folks before. The genie escapes. Stanford copies the ChatGPT AI for less than six hundred dollars. This is a good one. And I'm going to go in the reverse order, the order of the uh, introductions. Chris Pitcock, I'm going to start with you, then Jesse, and then the, the Robs. Um, there's some meat on the bones to this. Uh, this is kind of written in an interesting way. Um, uh, I, I thought this was uh, really something that uh, is... Yeah, uh, it, was, it was really just a $100 uh, there that they that it really cost them since they, they spent 500 bucks on uh, getting the uh, chat GPT to generate their training data for them. Um, well, good point. So, so the yeah, actual so, training was kind of... Uh, so I mean, so I think, yeah, share, share, with, share with us, uh, you know, just your thoughts. What stood out uh, as far as this piece is concerned? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, th these kind of really astonishing performance improvements kind of do do happen all, all the time. Uh, I mean, it happened in 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 our in our industry. Uh, there was a paper by Google announcing their WaveNet synthesizer um, and at that point, it was a hundred times slower than real time, um, and you know, unusable for practical purposes. Within two years, they've launched it into the cloud. Everyone's everyone's using it. It's a it's a it's a stable web service. Um, you know, and now you can run similar things on your phone. Um, so it's uh, it, the, the, those performance improvements do kind of happen when a new model comes along and people start really thinking about how to save money and uh, and refine it. Um, the I think the the model refinement angle is really is really important, especially for for LLMs, just because. So I was kind of saying I. Uh, I mean, I, I like to ask new models. Um, to explain something that I know about. So it's normally kind of explain how a text-to-speech system works. Um, and they're, they're just not really very good at, <laughs> at doing that still. Um, a Wikipedia page is, is, is a better source um, for, for explaining a topic that you know well. Um, 
And so really, I think for this, for this to be useful for many, many customers, uh, it will need to ingest some data from, you know, from FAQs from a company, documentation from a company. Um, the, the, the generic model uh, is, is going to be interesting and, and, and a, a good demo and, and be able to help you with, with some tasks, but for, for it to be really useful within a company environment is, is, is going to, I think, require uh, some of this training. So the fact that you can take some pre-trained model from the, uh, the, the Llama model, and then I think this will be more useful for, for companies that can then put their own data sets together and then train and then train up a model that they can then use. Um, although I guess there are, there are licensing issues around this because the model's not supposed to be used for anything other than research. There, there are licensing issues around the fact that, the, that when, when it was trained here, it was sort of reverse engineering, which is not allowed in open AI's terms and conditions either. Um, but uh, there, there seems to be a kind of train now, ask questions later kind of attitude, which has sort of sort of come up in, in already that you, you don't necessarily know where the underlying data for these systems has come from. And how do you how do you still trust that if you train a model yourself, um, refining those those data sets that that there isn't data in there that may that may give you legal problems if it is uh, if it is uh, listed or um, or be abusive or yeah cause other kinds of problems like that. So I want to I'm going to ask each panelist to to share their uh, response and what comes to mind from the piece, but but I'm also going to ask a separate question at the end, and I just want a one word answer. Um, you read this article. If you're Microsoft, you just invested a tremendous amount of money in open AI. Does this article make you feel better or worse about that investment? Just one word, yes or no. Makes them feel, no makes them feel nothing. Well, well, no, let, well yeah, let, let Chris answer and then after uh, Yeah, I mean, I, ahead, still, I'd still say yes, because okay. the, the, the we wouldn't be here without, without that. Uh, some, the, without the enormous, without that enormous investment, uh, we'd we'd be nowhere near the, the the kind of levels we're at. So yeah, it's still it's still worth it, even if even if something gets just vastly cheaper over a short period of time. Jesse, I'm coming to you. Same question: What stood out from this piece uh, to you? And I'll just uh, combine both. Uh, you know, what stood out to the piece uh, in your eyes? And uh, just conclude with yes, no answer. Does this article, you're sitting in, in, in the Microsoft office, you read this article, you feeling better or worse uh, about your investment in open AI? Yeah, I, I still think it, it, there's the jury is still probably out whether or not it can produce similar quality responses. Um, so I think that's still, I think that's still probably to be tested. Um, but if it can achieve similar sort of results and I saw the, the testing mechanism that they used and they were able to that quickly replicate what ChatGPT4 is able to achieve today, that, that is impressive. Um, and that's also, also just a testament to the state of the maturity of AI today, of open source models, of the ability to generate synthetic training data. I think it's, it's in my mind, just a very clear manifestation of the state of the AI world today that you know, a team is able to just churn out a, a GPT competitor that easily. Now, 
what I highly suspect is that maybe for these generic tests or maybe for like a subdomain of tasks or tests, it's able to achieve parity with ChatGPT. But we all know that that's not like anybody can really replicate the existing models that we probably all have in our businesses to an extent. But what ends up matter mattering is the fine tuning, is the is the winnowing down of that model for your specific use case. It is how you deliver it as a product. It is how embedded you are as APIs, which is why I think is another reason why OpenAI tag team with Microsoft so quickly because it's a pretty high switching cost for anybody to now extract ChatGPT from something like PowerPoint or from Outlook. So I think all these other factors matter when it comes to the question of who will win in this domain or who will be amongst the winners. I don't think it's just a function of can you replicate you know, exam scores or bar scores if you just duplicated ChatGPT's model. I think, I think the litmus test for a successful dominant product is much higher than that. Yeah, now you're touching on something that I, I find fascinating as well, which is just measurements uh, of any sort. You know, you're talking about like metrics of what success means, um, which I think is fascinating. Um, you know, how do we measure success of an AI product? How do we measure success of an AI company? Like, you know, outside of typical financial measurements, um, you know, I think that, you know, that's... Uh, that remains to be seen, but uh, yeah, appreciate those comments. Rob Carpenter, I'm coming to you. Uh, what stood out to, from the piece? And you're sitting in the Microsoft uh, office, uh, up in the up in the office with the management. You feel better or worse about reading this? Well, I'm an entrepreneur, so I always got to do my own thing and not follow the rules. So I have a hard time putting this in a yes/no category. I would say that you know, if I was them, I was annoyed too indifferent. And if I really have to be forced into two buckets, I think they're fine with it. I think this is definitely something where as more people get used to it and more people start adopting and interacting with this technology, it's kind of like an all boats rise together. So I think ultimately they're going to be totally fine with it. I think that if I was Microsoft, just expounding on this a little further, I really wouldn't be too concerned because I think what their investment gets them is the latest and greatest from OpenAI. Stanford, these other groups, they're just getting kind of the, the backflow. They're getting whatever sort of falls off. But you still need somebody who is pushing the state of the art and pushing the technology forward. And Microsoft's investment gives them access to that pipeline of technology and talent that is continuing to, to, to push this domain ahead, as I sort of referenced before with, you know, the eventual chat GPT five and six and seven. Um, I think in particular for this article, um, again, because I'm an entrepreneur, I tend to maybe be a little more cavalier about certain things, but I'm excited. Like, I think that the democratization of this technology, getting it into more places and allowing groups like all of us on this call here to take the existing infrastructure, fine tune it and get it really dialed into specific use cases in the market is going to create a lot of value overall in the industry. The Achilles heel for AI, in my opinion, is that 60 to 70% of the time, it's super impressive. And 30 to 40% of the time, it is god awfully wrong, but it really, really thinks it's correct. And that is why we don't have self-driving cars out there right now, because it can handle a lot of corners and a lot of streets just fine, but you hit, you know, one bicyclist and all of a sudden you shut down your entire program, right? Like those are really 
critical mistakes that AI cannot make. And I think trying to take AI from 60 to 70 percent to 80 percent to 90 to 95 to 98 to 99 is going to take a lot of work. And it's going to take companies like ours on this call getting hyper specific around specific use cases in the market or specific uses of core components of the technology and trying to get it to that accuracy level. When I got this article from you, I immediately sent it over to my team and was like, hey, our enterprise customer doesn't want to use chat GPT because they're afraid of all of their data being hoovered up. Going back to the security question, can we take this model? Can we put it inside of our environment? Can we wall it off? And then can we fine tune it and get all of that value that we were hoping to get out of this technology? So that type of stuff, I'm really excited to see where this goes. Excellent. Yeah, no, that's great. And so uh, Rob Lubo, your thoughts, what stood out to you from the piece? You've heard several uh, opinions. Uh, what stood out to you? And and same question in terms of uh, in Microsoft's eyes, um, is this uh, a, a fun story to read or, or a nightmare? What stood out to me? So I, like I said, I was using, I, I use this compulsively. And one of the things I did early on was I tried to get it to write bad things. To, not because I'm a bad guy, but I wanted to see if I could get it to create misinformation, like instructions on how to lead a, a genocide. A horrible, just, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry we're going there, but I just wanted to make sure that no one could do this. So I wanted to see how it reacts to like bad actors. And a lot of stuff came out saying like, okay, we're going to put guardrails. We don't want bad actors to use this. You know, and then Bard is coming out with like, hey, you know, we can't do this. We can't say this. Um, and so great. So these two these two companies are on top of it. Good. But then suddenly we hear, oh, wait a second, six hundred dollars you can make an LLM. Uh, the, the genie's out of the bottle. There's going to be any any person can create infinite amounts of misinformation um, if they want. So then I was thinking, well, is this a bad? Is that a bad thing necessarily? And then I thought, well, I was looking for the silver lining. I'm like. A lot of people get their information on Twitter or some random blog post, and that's a problem of our times. This, you know, this epistemology, how we know what's true. Um, some, you know, I like to look at AP, New York Times, uh, Snopes, factcheck.org, whatever. Even that is, you don't really know you're getting everything. So I, I empathize with people who don't go to those to, to formulate opinions. But um, with the LLMs now creating mountains of content that, we know could easily be wrong and sound spot on legitimate and the way it's worded. Um, I feel like those people that rely on fringe sources for information might say to themselves, hey, I now know I've heard that, you know, the, the information is being flooded with these LLM things that could sound really real. So maybe I'm going to include in my diet of news things like Wikipedia and AP and factcheck.org just to round out my knowledge. And we really need to rely on institutions and, and trustworthy sources more and more, um, even though it's not a perfect way to do things. And maybe this will push more people to do that because it's so bad now with everyone having access to LLMs that can turn out. And for Microsoft, I'd be happy because where do you turn for LLM interfaces that have that kind of institutional integrity where if they screw up and, the, and, and they're not, if their facts don't square with the other big, big shots, 
uh, they look bad. So I think that Microsoft, Google, these curators are going to be seen as responsible LLMs versus, you know, these people who who build their own LLM for 500 bucks and throw it up on, um, you know, some some strange blog. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I think that's a great I think it's a really interesting point that, um, you know, Microsoft would be viewing an article like this as a positive because of how they're differentiated institutionally. Um, I did not think of that, uh, but I agree uh, with it for sure. It's interesting. Um, I was doing a webinar yesterday um, with a separate company, and it came up about that Google um, is working to create a fact-checking um, set of machinery uh, that will in inform uh, Google Bard. and. Um, I always find stuff like that interesting. Um, you know, the um, we live in a strange time where there's disagreement on facts, and uh, that's kind of a problem when you're going to create AI and you want to purport to create a fact-checking service. Um, but it's just a problem for the technologists behind the service as well, unless we forget you know, any student of history would be able to rapidly rattle off many instances. I'll just name one, uh, how most of human history, we thought the sun orbited the earth. The fact checkers would tell you, you're an absolute idiot. You're irredeemable if you don't believe that. And only in the, you know, the blink of an eye in terms of uh, the, the age of our um, universe, uh, has, it, has there anything else been acceptable? So I, I empathize with these companies trying to wrap their hands around uh, how to present information. Not only what you said, Rob L, about stopping you know, blatant misinformation from being created um, willfully through their system, but also like softer, more nuanced and gray area type of stuff. Um, how you even present that, heck if I know how to do it, that's why you're getting paid billions of dollars. You know what I mean? So y'all go figure it out. Uh, any closing thoughts on any of this before we move on very briefly to the last story uh, and we'll close it out. A lot of the misinformation isn't just about facts. It's about arguments that are fallacious, like informal fallacy, um, weaponized rhetoric that persuades people to believe stupid things, irrespective of the facts. And these LLMs are really good at catching those informal fallacies and weaponized rhetoric techniques. So if there's a, an embedded ad hominem or some other, one of these Harry Potter spell type words of fallacies in the prose, it's great that the LLMs can, can flag those things and say to the reader, hey, this was a post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. So just be, a, be alerted. This is weaponized rhetoric. It's, it's designed to persuade you. Um, and so that's always a plus. I was well, going to throw one ahead, more Rob. quick thing out there, too, that I think it's important for us to be aware of. There was an article that came out earlier this week or last week where the OpenAI engineers gave ChatGPT a Mechanical Turk account and money. And ChatGPT was able to convince a human to get around a CAPTCHA for it and had the human actually click through the icon so that it could get to whatever its goal was on the other side. So I do think one thing to be concerned about with the Stanford or other models that kind of get out there is that OpenAI and Microsoft are trying to put some kind of gates around these systems. If that system is unlocked, 
then these AIs could be doing a lot from a human engineering standpoint that I think we all need to be very aware of. And I think it kind of feeds into what you were talking about with these narratives around what is a fact and alternative facts, you know, that we're struggling with in this country. If you have an LLM that sounds like a person on the other side of a text window, that can create some real issues in terms of social engineering. And so with the third story, I'm gonna I'm gonna punt the third third story altogether. I want to give Jesse and Chris Pidcock a chance to to respond to this before we close out. Um, and then I'll summarize the third one, and then we'll be done. Jesse, and then I'll Chris, I'll come to you. Um, your thoughts on um, this thread that we're on right now? Uh, you know, I I think we've always had, well, at least for the last few decades or so, we've always had this issue of um, fictitious or or faked text or images right you can have that with the invention of the computer or even mobile phones where people could make it seem like there's somebody else and same thing with pictures now right photoshop allows you to change any photo and i think we've had that so and now we're gonna have to answer the same question with chat gpt more in text format right now but of course it'll also apply in due course in terms of imagery and audio um, but I think the difference in this case is just the sheer volume at which you can do it because it's so easily automated, right? Photoshop still required that human behind the scenes to remove the cigarette in the famous uh, Beatles poster. But to do that at scale now across tens of millions of articles or images is a totally different equation that we're going to be confronted with. And I don't think we can all fall back on the neat uh, easy to migrate to argument of, hey, every technology just needs its own protections. And we need, to, well, just as we figured it out with Photoshop and text, so too we'll figure it out with OpenAI. I actually think this introduces a new problem that we haven't confronted before. I, I Yeah, I'm in agreement with you for sure. And Chris, I want to give you the last word on this piece. So we've sort of transitioned into, you know, talking about harms um you know in term and misinformation here i want to get your thoughts uh sh share them with us yeah i think um as as jesse said this the scale here is just so enormous and that that brings brings problems because obviously i don't think i don't think google and OpenAI do not want to be fact checkers for the output of their of their models um and they they can't be there's just there's there's too much <laughs> the scale is too big for them to for really moderate moderate it so um yeah we i think we we kind of have to to hope that um trust in certain certain information sources will will be uh will will actually adjust to the to the outputs of the models i i think um that's that's my kind of hope <clears throat> well yeah so i that would be nice, wouldn't it? Um, you know, it's strange times. And look, I appreciate all the comments. Uh, this is excellent. So the third story, by the way, uh, related to Alexa, I'm going to read the headline and then I'm going to close this out. I'm not going to discuss this at all. Uh, move over, Dolly. I'm making AI art with Alexa on my Amazon TV. It's from Tech Radar. Uh, when we pick this, when we pick the thread back up for season nine, it will be following closely the status of the various voice assistants relative to the status of LLM-based AI. I think that's an interesting thread to continue to watch. Gentlemen, thank you very much for the time um, and sharing your vast uh, expertise uh, with all of us. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. For Season 8, Episode 10 of This Week in Voice, thank you for listening on your podcast provider of choice. And thank you for watching. If you're watching us on YouTube, 
Until next time.